Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, Ambassador of 805 Connect, and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. Thanks to our podcasting partner, Pole String Press, for this great studio, and to Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Mark. Nice to see you. Patrick, I want you to meet Stephen Dunier. Hi, Stephen. Stephen, how are you this morning? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. So we met, kind of, it just feels like, well, three months ago, four months ago, had a, have had a couple of conversations, and... Um, you, I, I have to say, you absolutely challenge me in the sense that you're, you're um, phenomenally bright and attentive, and I don't always run into that, so I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, I like that, I like that uh, summary. <laughs> well, uh, just, um, so, so you've been in Santa Barbara about nine years now. Um, the thing, though, that you you do so i mean people can will post everything in the show notes you do a lot of different things but what i'm really interested in is your focus on how people make decisions yeah and it feels is it fair to say that's your life work your life's work i think that would be fair to say yeah it's the common bond that runs through everything that i do so you're not the first person to say I do a lot of things. A lot of people struggle to introduce me. Even my own kids struggle <laughs> to introduce me. Um, it's funny, my, my son posted after he went to, uh, to college, he posted on Facebook a picture with the uh, caption that said, uh, toughest question I've faced since coming to college. And it was a picture of a form that asked for his father's occupation. <laughs> and... Uh, so it's difficult to tie together all of the different things I do unless you do like you've just done. And what ties all of it together is decisions. That's what we do on a regular basis, whether I'm managing a fund, running a business, uh, putting together a yarn bomb, doing a podcast. It all comes down to decisions. So how do you approach the decision-making process? How do you understand how you are processing information? And how do you use that to your advantage? In the various conversations we've had, I've been able to walk backwards to see that that is the common thread with everything that you do. And for the listener who was paying attention, you went through several of the things, except for university professor, in what you just talked about. So yarn bombing, mm -hmm. uh, we'll get into that later, uh, pod listener, uh, don't get distracted and go Google a urine bomber <laughs> right now because you'll miss something. Um, I was intrigued with this one conversation where you were talking about how you approach the students in your class. By the way, Patrick is also a professor. <laughs> I like that you use that like it's a disclaimer. Like <laughs> full, full disclosure. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I think right, there's... So no BS here. There's somebody here who's going <laughs> to call you out. <laughs> well, no, it's... We, we have a lot of professors on yeah. the show, and yeah. I'm particularly interested in teaching and teachers. Uh, I have been all my life. And I've noticed that the only people that actually get to listen to the professor are their students. Mm -hmm. And they don't, there isn't a forum for them to talk 
And these are some of the smartest people on the planet that we have. And so I kind of enjoy the podcast as a mechanism for uh, having those kinds of conversations. Yeah. Back to decisions. Tell the story about how you explained out at UCSB the students, whether they came to class or didn't come to class or it was about the grade they were going to get. What was that? Remind <coughs> us of that right. story. So it was the end of the first time, first semester I taught. Um, we had, I think there were three classes left. And I had given an assignment, a reading assignment ahead of class. And uh, it must have been four minutes into the class when I could see from their faces nobody had read the material. <laughs> and I panicked because I had an hour and a half where that material set the vocabulary for what mm. I was going to discuss. If you didn't know that vocabulary, everything I would say was going to be gibberish. So I had a decision to make. Do I keep pressing forward, knowing that I'm wasting their time and my time? Or do I rewrite the entire lecture in about a minute while standing in front of them, kind of reset it in my mind with the understanding that they don't know what I'm saying if I don't use the right words? And uh, it really frustrated me, and it really knocked me for a loop. So mm. that night, I struggled with it, and I came to the next class, and I said, you are all free to go. Mm. That unless you're willing to make the effort to read what I'm suggesting you read and to then use that to listen to what I'm going to say in this class, there's no point in either of us being here. So you have three classes left you don't have to come anymore. And for most of them, they were graduating seniors, which meant they were done with school. And I saw most of them turn to each other and, you know, with this look of what? disbelief, like, really, we're, we can go. And, uh, and I said, yeah, just go. If I could have just five students show up at the next three classes, five students who really wanted to be here, we could have a, a really interesting dialogue you could gain something, I could gain something. That's much more worthwhile than having 45 of you sitting here and us gaining nothing. I, I expected maybe five people to show up. The I next class. At the next three classes, yeah. Right. And, uh, and so I requested that we actually move to a more intimate room for the remaining three classes. And we went to a, a more intimate room that only held 30 people and for the next three classes, all 45 students hmm. showed up. Hmm. I couldn't understand why. Did you ask them? I asked them. Nobody knew. And, and I used to have, you know, huh. I'd, I'd have this group of, you know, five to ten students who would regularly come to just sit with me during office hours just to talk. And when after that class they came to my office hours, I said, what well, the what? hell just happened? <laughs> right. And they all looked at me like, I have no idea. Maybe because they didn't have to be there, they actually wanted to be there. But nobody could explain it. But I even had a fourth class, three hours long, that replaced the final, which was anybody could show up or not show up. The grade was already set in stone. And all 45 people showed up for that three-hour optional class. So there's value in attendance. And, and I'm curious, because you analyze decisions, how do we analyze their decision to, to appear? 
I think you have to knock them out of their comfort zone. Their comfort zone was just, uh, you're supposed to want me to read this. You're supposed to want me to be here. I'm supposed to push back against that. And I just, I think I just invited cognitive strain in that moment when I said, you don't have to be here. You're not doing me any favors by being here. And you're certainly not doing yourself any favors just by showing up here. Which is, is the reality of the entire... All you did was point out to them exactly what they already... They don't have to be at college. They don't have to take the class. They don't have to continue to show up. There's, no, there's nobody who, who walks them from their house to your classroom. So you, yeah. you literally just told them the reality of the situation. You don't have to be here. And I would actually prefer you not to be here if you're not going to be prepared. And, 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 <laughs> and somehow that got through to them. They realized, oh, that, that is in fact the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have to be here. And, I, and, and what you just said, it, this is not rocket science. Right. No. Right. This is obvious. All I did was state the obvious. Right. Yeah. 99% of the time, that's what knocks people is <laughs> <laughs> hearing just the normal truth. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. We used to call that a BGO, a blinding glimpse of the obvious, oh, yeah. right? And a lot of times that's it's just staring you right in, yeah. right in the face. You slipped a word in there in your last answer, which we spent probably twenty minutes talking about, which was cognitive strain. Yep. And the core, the other, which was cognitive ease. We play something called buzzword bingo on the show. Okay. <laughs> you were, you were oh, so did polite. I just step in it? He did. But Mark, Mark normally stops the, the statement. It was really nice that he let you continue. <laughs> right. I'm practicing chivalry. Uh, explain what those two terms mean. Because the, the person who's listening to the show is uh, maybe a business person, wants to be a business person, um, entrepreneur. They're at all ages of life. Um, they're literally from all over the world. And when we talked about that, it just completely hit me of those periods of strain and ease that I go through. Explain what that is and why that's important to be aware of that. Yeah. So, you know, it's very hard to give a, a tiny, succinct answer. We have plenty to... of time. <laughs> so our brains are kind of hardwired to want to achieve and maintain a state of cognitive ease. We don't like to think hard. You know, you, you, you do everything you can to avoid having to think hard. One of those things we do to avoid it is we use our intuition, our gut feel. That's typically what gets us into trouble. My argument is you can't actually avoid cognitive strain, although that's what we attempt to do. We try to avoid cognitive strain whenever possible. In my mind, there are really two options. You either invite cognitive strain on your own terms when you don't have to, meaning you challenge yourself to think deeply and think very hard about something when you don't have to. And it, by doing that, it enables you to make decisions that are more probabilistic in nature, more rational, more logical, more objective. The other option is to keep pushing off cognitive strain, keep avoiding it whenever possible. And at some point, you will have to deal with cognitive strain because it's been inflicted upon you. And in those moments, you're going to tend to be dealing with some sort of emotional distress, which means your decisions are going to be more emotionally driven, meaning they'll be less probabilistic in nature, less rational, less objective, less logical. So all I'm trying to suggest is think 
is that you want to actually think deeply about things, even when you will say, who cares about this? I don't really want to think hard. I've just worked hard all day. I just want to come home and I just want to sit in front of the TV. I just want to have a beer. I don't want to think hard about anything. And there's a whole world out there looking to capitalize on that fact that you don't want to think hard. And so there are, you know, decades of research, uh, you know, in cognitive science that essentially delivers information to marketers, to other business people that are competing against you, um, that are going to take advantage of the fact that you are trying to avoid cognitive strain. And by avoiding cognitive strain, we tend to um, fall prey to what's known as cognitive bias. And bias is, uh, it's not a word that I like to use because I, I don't think it, it conveys exactly what it means. Cognitive bias is a systematic error in judgment. Like you think about that definition, it means that you make mistakes in a predictable way. Huh. Okay. If you're making mistakes in a predictable way, I can predict those and I can capitalize on them. Now, I know that I am just as vulnerable to cognitive bias as the next person. So the question for me is, how do I protect myself? And one of the biggest ways is through cognitive strain, is that you are truly thinking deeply and questioning things every moment. So this thinking deeply on, it's purposeful deep thinking. So it's, it's like I'm, I'm aware I am mm -hmm. going to be thinking deeply about this. I'm going to turn off my distractions yeah. so that I can think deeply about this subject, which uh, in an age of continuous partial attention uh, is, is... Is really no attention. Is, there is no partial right. attention. There's no attention. You're just essentially absorbing things. If you're not, if your defenses are not up at that moment that you're absorbing this information, that information converts to belief. And all intuition in the future, all gut feel decisions in the future will be based on that information, which came in unchecked initially. Hmm. So this is not simply about, okay, now I'm really going to focus. This is about switching from a belief-based system to a fact-based and evidence-based system. This is questioning everything, and not just until you find information that confirms your bias. What you as a scientist are essentially trying to do is disconfirm or find the holes in what's being delivered to you. So as a business person, that's something we should be doing all the time. As a human being, that's something we should be doing all the time. You cannot separate the business person in you from the just average person in you. You share the same belief set. You use the same set of information in order to utilize that intuition, that gut feel. Those business choices, those mistakes you're making, they're the same mistakes you're making as on your personal life. So, okay, okay. so is when I act from my gut and I'm intuiting, that's belief-based decision-making? That's where your mistakes are most likely to happen. But this is, the, this is the difficult part. We don't see it when it's happening. The smarter we are, the more educated we are, and particularly the more successful we are, the more we tend to believe in our intuition and our gut feel. 
right? Because that's our experience. And it's like, what do they say? Trust your gut. Mm -hmm. What's your gut say? You know, um, this it doesn't smell right. All of those things. So you're kind of throwing, you're saying, nope, that whole thing is wrong. Yeah, I'm saying that uh, your competitors are going to depend on that. So when I'm making a decision, I could check myself and say, am I making that decision based on a belief I have, or is this a fact-based decision? It's going to be too late by then. So you Steven, give me some hope here. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you cannot just turn this on and off. You can't say, now I'm at business, now I'm going to turn this on, and now I'm home, I just want to relax. No, so I got that. So it's so just It's about life. the moment that the information is coming to you. That's the moment you must have your defenses up. That's the moment you must question it. So give me an example. So, uh, uh, I'll give so you an this example. is the garbage in, garbage out, mm -hmm. right? That's exactly right. So uh, I read an article a few months ago that was going around, made it to me, um, which is not, not easy, um, but it was an article about uh, the backstory as to why so many – Nail salons in the U.S. are owned by Vietnamese descendants. And you hear that and you go, okay, I've seen a lot of nail salons, lots of Vietnamese-looking people in there. That's probably right. That's what our brains do. It's confirming evidence. So the whole story was based on us buying into that one fact in order to make the rest of the story interesting. Okay. And immediately my question was, is that really true? Because in this article, it said something like, I don't know, 80-something percent of nail salons were owned by Vietnamese descendants. And I thought, that's an astounding number. Like, I could see for it. For any industry. For anything. Even right. for Vietnamese restaurants. That's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But you read it, and you go, okay, what's next? And so I tried to find, how did they come to that number? Now, most people go, who cares? <laughs> But Stephen, but that the deep just, thinker. That, you know, like you said, that's a really high number for any industry. And in order for me to go on and, and read this article, I don't want this little so bit of knowledge stopped. to be in here for maybe a decision that comes to me 10 years from now. So I stopped and I said, where did they get that from? So I kept digging and digging and digging. I saw the same article basically rewritten in a number of different publications, but they were all just copying and pasting right, it. Right. And I finally found the initial study that they got this number from. And it was a, um, a questionnaire that went out with a certain number of nail salon-specific magazines. The biggest contributor to it was a Vietnamese version of this nail salon magazine. So almost all of the respondents came through the Vietnamese version right. of this nail salon magazine. Oh, there you go. That's your bias. And so the rest of the article was just a narrative. It was fiction. It tied in and it connected. That's what they wanted. They wanted to connect it so that you would buy right. into it. And now I've got the basis for not fiction but a nonfiction story. So don't believe what you read or check what you read. Check what you read. Check what you read. Because not believing it, you know, it's basically you, your brain cannot make that distinction. Unless you take that moment to either prove it or disprove it, it will believe it. Even if you say, I'm not going to believe this, 
you're believing it. It's back there. And if you didn't check it in that moment, it's now belief. It's no longer just news. When did when were you aware enough at what age did this way of thinking and approaching life become evident, self-evident to you? It's, uh, it wasn't an epiphany okay. for me. It was growing up in a house where my father repeatedly said, the answer to every problem is in your head. And Is that right? I shouldn't say right. Is that does that prove out? Yes. Okay. Now, the actual solution doesn't necessarily already exist there. But that's but where it would that's be. where I'll find where to get the information okay. to solve that problem. Yeah. I've heard it said, um, "All I need is within me now." Hmm. It's a similar yeah, kind of thing. Other than a whole lot of data, <laughs> <laughs> which. Because you're, you're very data-driven. That's fact. Yeah. Because the facts. Yeah. So I want to transition a little bit to a project that you endeavored. Because I love the deep thinking part because I'm, I'm not that guy. I, I want to be that guy, and I, hopefully I, I will listen to this show like another five times and become more like that when I have the opportunity and would encourage others to. You're, you're making a strong case for that. You... Uh, five or six years ago decided that um, you're in a position in life where you uh, are of means enough to be able to you know, support nonprofits and causes and things of that ilk. And in this area, it's hard to not be hit up all the time for those kinds of things, especially if you're new to town. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody finds you, you show up on the radar. Um, and you want to be found when you first show up in town. There's that. Yeah. Um, you decided that you didn't want to, what you told me is you didn't want to give a little bit of money to a lot of things and not make a difference, but you wanted to do uh, something that I call impact investing. It's not my word, but it's you want to make an impact with that. So you set about a deep think on where, what could I give my money to that where I could make a difference. And it felt like you were agnostic about what the, you didn't know what the answer would be at all. You did not approach it with a bias. Yeah, exactly. I love that you just pointed that out. You said, Let, let's see where I could. So tell us about that, because this, this is an example of the decision analysis. It's an example of the deep thinking. It's the example of how you have been able to put serious blinders on yourself to avoid that distraction, go to the root cause, and as a result, come up with an answer. It took five years, but walk us through that, and, and we've, we've got time. I think this is a perfect example of what you've been talking about. So, yeah, when we first moved to Santa Barbara, it was nine years ago, I decided I wanted to get involved with some sort of social cause. I didn't have any bias as to what I wanted to get involved with. Um, but when you're setting up a decision problem, you've got certain pieces to the puzzle. So one is you acknowledge what the states of the world are. Right. Th those states are the things that you can't control. It's a fact of life. Yes. And so you acknowledge it and you know that that state is going to affect the transition between the acts that you can choose from. Those are the things you do control. Yep. And the outcome you desire. Got it. If you ignore the states of the world and... 
you reduce the odds of converting your act into the outcome you want. Okay, that makes sense. So the first thing is to essentially understand what those states are. Now, keep in mind that there were a number of qualifications that I had when I set about this task. One was I didn't want to get on what I call the hamster wheel of charitable donations, meaning I didn't want to ask others to donate over and over again to try and do the same thing the next time. Right. And I actually wanted to solve a problem. I didn't just want to put a Band-Aid on it. So I started researching all of the different causes that I could get involved with, right? You think about like health, so you've got cancer or, you know, liver issues, lung issues. You've got so many different things you can choose from. You've got animal rights, you've got women's rights, kids' rights, um, crime. I mean, there are so many different social causes that you could pick from. We tend to pick them when they affect us. So right. somebody <clears throat> that I know just died of lung cancer, I'm going to get involved with trying to fight lung cancer. And that's fine. But I wanted to remove emotion. I wanted to be efficient. I wanted to approach this problem like I would macro investing. I wanted to understand what is the world, what are we dealing with, and how can I, one person with limited resources, limited time, actually affect change. And that's what I want to focus mm -hmm. on. So in gathering data for all of these different causes, I kept coming back to this one thing. And that one thing was education. So, so if you, so we, we've already learned that you, we should be checking our facts, right? Yeah. Fact check at input. So you're in this massive input phase, right? You're just, you're studying, you're looking, you're Googling, you're doing all this. And what you kept coming back to, much like with the Vietnamese thing, you kept coming back to this one article. You keep coming back to this one theme, which was education. Yeah. Is it a, it was education's not working right or? I didn't even get to that part yet. And, and this is part of the, the, the problem with decision-making is we immediately jump to the different acts we can choose from, and then we assess just those. And that creates a very small frame, just a couple of different options. Whatever just happens to be in front of us, we'll analyze those. It's and a go, smaller okay, data best. set. Well, it's just it's a smaller consideration set. Okay, fair. So, you know, so-and-so is involved with this charity. This one's involved with this one. Which should we pick? And instead, I didn't want to approach it from that side. I wanted to start with what's the problem itself. And so before I can get to what's wrong with education, I have to just make sure it's education. And so looking at the data and seeing, you know, that somebody who drops out of high school is 19 times more likely to wind up in prison Crazy than stat. somebody who graduates college. Like, this is not a rounding error, right? This is significant. Okay, right. This is hard to really screw up this. And you say, okay, well, that's uh, – uh, it's correlated perhaps, but is it caused by it? And then you start looking at all these other different things. You say, okay, well, I'd like to promote women's rights. Well, who better to promote women's rights than women? And you look at the statistics, and I believe it's something like a woman, an educated woman, is five times more likely to vote than an uneducated woman. Now, if that's the case, we need to educate more women. They'll vote more often. Politicians will care more about what they have to say, and then women's issues will be front and center. So it, things like that just kept leading back to education. And so 
for me, it came to, you know, to fast forward a bit, uh, not to take you through five years of research, <laughs> um, but it came down to K-12 education. And, you know, to give you an idea, it wasn't just reading a couple of articles or even a few books, which I did, but it was learning the data and then going out there and understanding what have people been working on because we spend $650 billion a year on K-12 education in America. Where's that money going to and where do people think we need to improve? And again, this, this research was just so you could figure out how to make an impact. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't, you weren't writing a book, you weren't on somebody's payroll, you're not a reporter. This, no. is, this is one single man's quest for the truth. Somebody who just has an insatiable curiosity. Um, and so I came to uh, I came to this one conference I can recall. There were three thousand teachers in the room and me, <laughs> and uh, and the first question that I was asked by all of them was, "Why are you here?" And uh, and I thought that was a curious question because I'm always hearing teachers say we need to get people more involved in education and here I was getting and, involved and the first question was why are you here well it's the Sesame Street one of these things is not like the other <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and it and we're, we're genetically programmed to notice the odd man out. oh yeah I was yeah I, I guess I stood out like a sore thumb I don't know you're probably um, asking lots of questions <laughs> I, yeah I was asking a lot of questions yeah. but but there was one at this conference and I can remember it was like you know when you know, a man landed on the moon. You know where you were. I, for me, I, I was in the womb. But um, it, I can remember sitting at this table, and there was a slide put up on the screen by the head of the largest teachers' union, and it was an image of two devils in hell. They were freezing and looking at the thermostat, and one said to the other, I guess uh, teachers are being paid more than baseball players now. So hell has frozen over. Yeah. Right. And everybody in the audience chuckled. And for me, my question was, is that really that far from the truth? And now, you know, we automatically assume, right? And because of the way it's framed in the location we were at and the audience that was sitting there, it was just assumed that baseball players make a whole lot more than teachers do. Again, so this is goes back to your – there was that a belief system – that you would challenge because you didn't share that belief. You it didn't was, even know that was a belief. Yes. So this is a moment when the brain is trying to achieve or rather maintain a state of cognitive ease. Everybody in that audience did not want to think hard. So you've got somebody on stage who knows what you want, and they're going to deliver something that they believe you want and you know you want, huh. and that is a bias. And they're going to feed on that bias. And so nobody's going to question it because it confirms my bias. And it allows you to maintain cognitive ease. The best way to deliver a message to somebody is to get them to achieve and maintain cognitive ease. You do not want them thinking deeply. You've just perfectly described the political landscape yeah. <laughs> in just the United I, States. It's I like just, every just, political speech I've ever right. seen. Right. I mean, there's a reason why... Uh, there's late night uh, infomercials. Right. It's because you're achieving cognitive ease in that moment. Yeah. You are most vulnerable to that suggestion. So at this audience heard this, you know, saw this cartoon, they all laughed and moved on. And I made a note to myself, find out how far off this is right. from reality. Right. And I am actively trying to disprove this. That's what you're supposed to do as a scientist. 
You are not trying to confirm anything because that doesn't prove anything. You have to try to disprove it. And if you can't disprove it, you've got good evidence. So all I did was gather data. First, the question is, what does it mean to be a professional baseball player? Now you think Major League Baseball, but there's a whole lot more baseball players that are professional than just those. Right. There's a whole lot more than A-Rod out there. And it turns out that 90% of professional baseball players make less than the average teacher, and quite a bit less. And no one knows that. Nobody, you, you knew it. You figured it out. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and, and this and, isn't an attack no, on this teachers. Is not. This is just a, it's literally saying that's, that's not the best way to articulate our struggle. And if we stick with that articulation, we're not ever going to fix the real problem. I, yeah, I mean, I don't want to get into that <laughs> sure. part, right? Like, I don't want to put – I'm not even at struggle or any of that right, stuff, yeah. no, right? Yeah, yeah. This is – I want to be purely unemotional. I'm not trying to undermine anybody. I'm not trying to give uh, ammunition to this somebody else. Right. I just want the – I want to see the world as it actually exists. Right. So, um, so, you know – Baseball players are actually paid less. Yeah, and, and and the interesting thing was, so I said, okay, well, let's just look at professional athletes in general. And it turns out, you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average baseball player, the median salary for a, a professional athlete in America is roughly $1,500 more per year than the median teacher salary. That's all. That's what you're talking about. Hardly a hell-freezing-over kind of event. Sure, no. sure. So that can't be the problem, that we're not paying teachers enough, right? So you just – you keep going through these things and you try and figure out, well, what is it? And it did for me – you know, we've seen so many studies that corroborate this from back in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, 90s, and into this century that say the key to education is the teacher themselves. Like, you give me a good teacher, I don't care if the kid's got school lunch program, I don't care if they're on an agrarian calendar, I don't care if they have access to iPads, you give me a good teacher, that kid's going to learn. So, how do we get more driven, more passionate, more uh, better educated people to fill this profession? That's my big question. How do I, as one person, draw more people to the education field. And that was the the big revelation or yeah, I mean at the end of the research. Exactly. At the end of 5 years that's what it came down to. I need to do what I can to make this a profession once again. So th it led to the question, well, why aren't the smartest kids in college coming to this profession? Why is it that if a valedictorian went to their parent and said, I'm going to go into teaching, the parent would say, why would you do that? You have yeah. so much potential. Right. But they don't do that if the kid says, I want to go into medicine or business or law. This is an actual profession. Absolutely. And so it after going further and further down the road, it, it, I realized that it's not that teachers get paid less than everybody else because it turns out the average teacher is in the top 25% of income earners in America. It's that nobody realizes just how little everybody out there makes mm -hmm. because we don't see the guy making $45,000 a year on TV. 
We don't see the guy who plays professional baseball for 12000 a year plus $20 a night while he's on the road for meals. We see A-Rod. We see the mega contract. We see the outliers. Hmm. There are no outliers in teaching. So we see the celebrities in any one of these industries, and we don't see teachers as celebrities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mrs. Smith, celebrity teacher from her first grade classroom in Palo Alto, California. Now you mock me. No, no, I but mean that is the answer. Right, you, that's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> no, like, that, that's yeah, exactly the answer, yeah. right? Is how do we make teachers into celebrities? Yeah, how do we create an outlier? How do we create a teacher who's making fifty million a year for teaching? Not for writing a book about teaching, not for going on the road speaking about it, because that's what we do now. Every time we find a really great teacher, we pluck them out of the classroom and we put them on the book tour. Well, they need to teach other teachers, obviously, right? They're not doing that. Huh. We have some really great, you know, teachers out there. And and going through this, I've met some teachers like, you know, I've I met a, a principal of a school in South Carolina it was storm ravaged. They had uh, brought two schools together because one school was demolished. You've got half the school is on a school lunch program. The other half is in a well-to-do community. You've got half the school has single parents and, uh, and the other has you know two parents in the home. You've got two groups coming together with not enough facilities. You've got overcrowded rooms. And when you heard this guy speak, like at the end, at the beginning of every day, he was out in front of that school welcoming every kid into that school. Welcome to school. By the time this guy was done speaking to this group I was a part right, of, right. I was hallelujah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was like at a revivalist meeting. Yeah, re- yeah. meeting. It was – if you can fill 3.8 million classrooms with people like that, we won't be talking about an education problem anymore. The question is how do we fill those classrooms with people like that? Better candidates in the funnel? Yes. Is there some place where our reader who's interested in this could go learn more about the work you've done? The LPE.com. So it's T-H-E. Yes. L-P-E. What is L-P-E? League of Professional Educators. Is this something that there is a League of Professional Educators? We are working to build it. Wow. So this was was one man's mission to make an impact – netted into a website that we can go and read about this research and read about these stories and 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 help get behind the cause yeah that would be great oh i love that <laughs> you like when there's an answer at the end of well i'm i i, I like a call to action yeah. i don't want to just have a conversation because right. that doesn't do any exactly. of us any good i want to have a call to action so the call to action is to develop a uh basically a league for professional educators. So we are going to find the 50 best teachers in the country, and we are going to uh, put them through a combine, just like you do with the NFL and you know other major sports leagues. And we are going to find these best teachers. We're going to give them five-year, $1 million contracts. We are going to try and get them endorsement deals like anybody else uh, in, you know, that's great in their profession. I mean, who wouldn't want to have one of the the country's best teachers endorsing their product, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, Just like a celebrity chef. 
Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I just, I absolutely, I, I love this idea. I, what I'd love to do is, um, Your Honor, I'd like to be able to recall the witness. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd love to bring you back in, in, you know, six months or whatever and, and to hear more about that because we're tragically out of time. 45 minutes just really? evaporated. Wow. Gone. And uh, I, I joked earlier, but I want our listener to go. It's yarnbomber.com. Yes. When you <laughs> talked earlier about the, the difference between, you know, business and personal, and it's no, it's just one life. You lead lives on a, in a lot of different universes. You're a drummer. Mm-hmm. You're a yarn bomber. I'm not even, I'm going to let people just go find it because I showed a guy in Brazil today, this morning, your site. I said, I'm interviewing this guy, and we're not going to talk about that. But go look at it. It's spectacular what you've done in that and how you've built a worldwide community around this concept. And I want to come and have a, uh, another talk just on that. But there was one image there that just I have goosebumps now just thinking about it was because it's a collaboration. Every one of your projects is a massive collaboration, which is another big thing for me. There's soldiers in Afghanistan sitting around knitting, yeah, contributing to your project. That was just, I mean, I'm tearing up about it because it's such an important thing to work with with the military because they're working so hard for us that you can take something that's fun and whimsical and artistic and all of the things that make that project exquisite to me and that it can touch people around the world. So thank you for that as well. Uh, go look that up, listener, because um, Stephen. Uh, so you you you're a wealth manager, is that right? That's not right. What, how would you say no. that? What well, you... I was a former hedge fund manager. Okay, you were that, but you write this. If you've not figured it out, listener, by now, you Steve does a lot of research, and you have a newsletter now. It's Bija School mm-hmm. Seeds of Thought. So if I Google B I J A. Seeds of thought. I can find the newsletter, and can anybody sign up for that? Uh, yeah, it's not cheap though. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, it's it's really written for a very small niche group of okay. institutional. But investors. they could go to Bisha just to learn more yeah. about what you do in that world. <clears throat> yes. So we've got that. We've got the LPE.com. What other things are you involved in that I want to point people to? <sighs> She's, uh, I don't. Those are, those, yeah, are those, yarn those are the yarn bombing. Those are the yarn bombing and writing and teaching and uh, coaching and speaking and you know and yeah. There's a and lot. the other thing is, is you don't. You told me you don't watch the news. You don't watch Correct. TV. Don't read newspapers. Don't read newspapers. Don't read magazines. But but you're probably better informed than most people walking on State Street right now. I believe that's. That's the way to get. There. We can we, fact we'd check have me. to. Yeah, we'd I'm have just to actually say, check that's that. That's my we belief, and we have yeah. to check that. Stephen, thank you so much. Pleasure. This Thanks has been a fantastic me. conversation, and we come to that part in the show where our listener has been waiting for 47 minutes for me to get to this part, which is understanding. We've had this great conversation. I want to give it a name. We want to give it a name because in a long list of interesting podcasts. We want this one to stand out amongst the others. What would we title this conversation? Bija. Okay. It's uh, 
Bija is a Sanskrit word that means the seed of future results. I love that. Um, th this is, I can see why 10 students will come and glom on in your office and want to talk to you. I, I've enjoyed every one of our conversations, including this one. Thank you again so much for that. So notice, listener, how that wasn't, there wasn't even a millisecond pause there. Sometimes we wait five minutes to get that answer. I also want to thank California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services, our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio, and Cielo24, who provides the searchable captions for our show. The 805 Connect Project is supported by partners and sponsors throughout the region. I want to thank them as well. If you're interested in how you might be able to support the 805 Connect Project, go to 805connect.com. And Patrick, uh, this part of the show is how, how could someone, the person who's listening right now, what that call to action, what could they do? Well, two things, Mark. Uh, one thing would be to go back through the back catalog, find some of those, those old hits, maybe do a little binge listening, uh, download five or six of them for your next big road trip or your uh, commute. Uh, 805 Conversations is uh, a really good way to pass the time because it really is an opportunity to uh, touch base with some uh, very big intellectuals. And secondly, uh, the next time you're talking to that four or five year old and you say, what do you want to be when they grow up? Uh, why don't you suggest teacher? Why don't we just jump? jump oh, I love jump that. Oh, yeah. yeah let's in. do that. Well, yeah, so what should I be? Celebrate. You should be a teacher. Why don't we celebrate yeah, that? Yeah, awesome. Yeah. You can get a shoe deal. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I'd love to hear from you personally, too. If you've got a great idea for someone we should be talking to, send me a note, mark at 805connect.com. Let, let me know what you like about the show or what you didn't like, how I could start um, making it even better. So until next time. This is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.